0: So in, in that vein, when was the last time you actually sat down and wrote a letter? Right? I know Vicky's mom does all the time, and she gets letters all the time. But I mean, but just for the rest, I'm not talking about like a, an email, but an actual, like a pen and ink letter. And if the answer is not recently, then you can count yourself among the literally millions of Americans that just don't write letters anymore. In fact, I, I was looking it up. The post office says that the average American home now receives only one personal letter about every two months. And I bet you the stats are even probably lower than that. I know, well, Vicky's mom gets a personal letter every week from one of her cousins, but that kind of skews the odds. But for centuries past, just like I was telling the kids, people who wanted to get in touch with other people, people who were separated by distance, had only one way to do it, and they wrote letters. Because it was the only means of long-distance communication that existed, at least until the invention of the telegraph in the 19th century. And since then, modern communication technologies have slowly but all too surely eroded the necessity of putting pen to paper. But you know, if you think about it, where would the history of the world and of Western civilization be without letters? Well, for starters, we wouldn't have a very full picture of how past generations lived because the letters that those people left behind, give us invaluable evidence of what our ancestors did, of what they ate, how they dressed, what they dreamed about, who they loved, and even why they went off to war. All from those letters. And then if you go from from that point of view in the secular world, in secular history, and go into sacred history, without letters we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. Produced primarily by the Apostle Paul, who was undeniably a prolific letter writer. And as I was telling the kids, we're turning again today for the second time. This is the second message in a series that we began last week into the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, a letter that has been so amazingly influential in the lives of literally millions of Christians throughout the ages of Christendom. Because since early in the church era, the church body has recognized the importance of this letter, and even its position in the New Testament indicates that the early church saw this as the most significant letter that Paul wrote. Because if you if you look at the canon of Scripture, it's placed first among all his letters. And it's not because it's the longest. It's definitely not because it was the first one he wrote, but because, as one commentator said, it is the most ordered, complete, and comprehensive statement from the Apostles' pen. And the, the influence of Romans on the early church can be seen in a number of instances. Instances where the, the power of Paul's letter to the Romans has brought about a completely life changing experience for individuals and, and spurred times of church revival and renewal by providing an understanding of what God has done and what he continues to do for us in Jesus Christ. One good example of that is the, the great church father, St. Augustine. It was through his reading of Romans chapter 13, that the Holy Spirit brought him to faith. In fact, he he picked it up, and this is what he read from Romans chapter 13. He read, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We were just talking about that in Sunday school. And Augustine later wrote that, he needed not read any further because by these verses, God transformed his previously lecherous and drunken life and and birthed a whole new spirit within him and flooded his heart with the assurance that he was a child of God. Another remarkable example from Romans is the power that it had and the role that it played in 16th century Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther called this book, really the chief part of the New Testament and truly the purest gospel. He said it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, anybody out there do that? But also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Can't take a much higher recommendation than that, can you? Calvin wrote likewise, declaring that if we have gained a true understanding of Paul's epistle to the Romans, we have an open door to the most profound treasures of Scripture. And, you know, its influence wasn't even just confined to continental Europe because the enormous impact of Romans reached beyond the Old World in the 1700s when the Wesley brothers sailed for America. Because before leaving England, John Wesley had, as he calls it very unwillingly, he says, gone to a gathering where someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to Romans And that night, Wesley went home and wrote in his journal, he said, about a quarter before nine, while the speaker was describing the change which God works in the heart through Jesus Christ, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed.' He said, I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So there's no doubt that the Apostle Paul spoke not only to his day, but to generations of Christians. You know, still we have to ask ourselves whether Paul's writings, and particularly this letter to the Romans, is still a living word to the 21st century church. Does Paul still speak to us directly, person to person, and to everyone that this book encounters? And in case you don't know, the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. Because Paul was called by God and inspired by the Spirit to share this message with all generations. Especially because no matter how much knowledge we gain or how sophisticated we think that we become, people today are really no different than they were in Paul's day. When he wrote this letter. Because in it we find that we have been created for fellowship with God, but that sin has separated us from Him, And that we can't save ourselves. But that God's grace in Christ bridges that chasm between God's holiness on one hand and our sin on the other. And now, by the gift of faith in Christ, we can be put right with God. We can be forgiven. We can be changed. And so I want to take a look at Romans chapter 1. This is beginning in verse 8 through verse 17. Hear the words of the living God. Paul writes, Let me say. First, that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and all your needs in prayer to God. The God whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing to come at last to see you. For I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want to be encouraged by yours. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit, just as I have seen among other Gentiles. For I have a great sense of obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world to the educated and the uneducated alike. So I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. And this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture said, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So you see, it's no wonder the message of Romans has been used so profoundly by the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual revival in the church and to have such a a continuing influence on the individual people of God because this letter takes us to the very living heart of the gospel. And even though Paul wrote it to a specific church family in a particular city called Rome at the same time by the influence of the Spirit, he wrote it to the whole world. And even though this letter was addressed to the saints living in the first century, it's, its message is eternal and its mandates are universal. And so knowing that, we still have to ask ourselves, what should the letter of the Romans mean to you and me as modern-day Christians? And for one thing, it defines many of the doctrines of our faith that we hold to be true, like the, the doctrine of justification and sanctification, our divine election, the, the perseverance of the saints, Man's depravity after the fall, the last judgment, all this revelation of God and all of it from the pen of a man who started his adult life as an enemy of Christ and a persecutor of the church. Because remember, he wasn't born a super saint. Remember the Apostle Paul, his Hebrew name, his birth name was Saul, and when he was born around 5 AD, he was born in the city of Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey born to Jewish parents, but to ones who also possessed the coveted privilege of Roman citizenship. A privilege that, as their son, Paul would also possess. Which makes it even more incredible that Paul begins this letter, as we saw last Sunday, with this line I want to share with you again. He says, This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. So you see, Paul didn't think of himself as possessing any independence. And he identifies himself in the letter not as fellow citizen of Rome, not as professor of Hebrew theology, or even as a a famous evangelist, but as Jesus' slave. And he does it in a world where slavery was a harsh reality and a degrading distinction. But Paul glorified in calling himself Jesus' slave as a way of communicating just how good and worthy a master that Jesus is. One translator said here, in 21st century Christianity, we've replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment. And we've replaced the term slave with servant. But there's an important difference because he said a servant gives service to someone for something, but a slave belongs to someone. He said, as free people, we can commit ourselves to do something, but when we surrender ourselves to someone, We give ourselves up. And Paul wanted his readers in Rome, slave and free alike, to know that he was owned by the Lord Jesus Christ, that he had no rights to anything for himself that the Lord didn't grant him. And and even that he was willing to give up those rights, if doing so would enable him to better serve his master. With all of his own needs, completely surrendered to his assigned task, and that was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's another word for us today, too. Because do we realize today that Jesus freed us from a slavery of life to sin so that we can freely become a slave of Christ? That he's freed us from the bondage that we had so we can give ourselves freely to him by surrendering everything, our, our bodies and our, our minds and our money and our relationships and our time and, and our talents, our plans for the future, giving it all to him. Or are you and I still trying to use God to advance our own agenda? Kind of like he's a genie in a bottle who you just call on when you have a particular need. Because, you know, really that's what the Apostle Paul was doing when we first encounter him in Scripture. right? If you think about it, we really first meet Paul in the Bible two years after the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And he's standing at the execution by stoning of a young man named Stephen. A Christian man who gave a very forceful and passionate message about Christ a message that enraged the local crowd and earned him the spot as the very first Christian martyr. The historian Luke tells us that Stephen's executioners laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul of Tarsus for safekeeping and that he looked on in full approval of Stephen's murder by the mob. And from there, Saul ravaged the church, breaking into the homes of believers and and dragging off to prison men and women and children. And he got so caught up in doing that, he even organized a campaign under the control of the high priest to go to Damascus and round up the Christians there too. But we know what happens next, don't we? Because on his way to Damascus, Paul experienced a life-changing event. And as he and his companions rode out, suddenly this brilliant light shone around them, and he was quite literally knocked from his high horse fell to the ground with a voice ringing in his ears saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And When Paul looked up, the risen Christ was standing right in front of him. And from there, Paul dedicated the rest of his life to spreading the good news of Jesus Christ to the known world, including the center of that world in his day, which was the city of Rome. Which at the time was a A thriving metropolis with an estimated population of about 4 million people. Or about the same amount as when the snowbirds are here and you go to Walmart. Right? Okay? And so in in the midst of all of these people, it had a tiny Christian population that had a story all of its own. Because most Bible scholars agree the church in Rome was founded by Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem and that were in the temple. And the apostle Peter preached his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and they heard him, and they believed, and they took that message back to Rome and planted a congregation there. And now the reports of this Roman church had reached the newest apostle, the apostle Paul, and he's overjoyed. He's overjoyed to hear about their great faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you remember in our text today, Paul commends them for their faith and assures them that he's continually praying for them. He says, God knows how often I pray for you, because day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all of my heart by spreading the good news about his son. He says, one of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come and see you. So he lets this group know that he wants to come to them, how badly he wants to visit, because remember we said this church was most likely started by people who were witnesses to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, but nobody from the church of Jerusalem had likely been there. None of the apostles had gone to share with them all that there was to Christianity, and now Paul longed to go and take them deeper into it. Even though it was pretty clear they were probably on the right track, because he said your your faith in him in Christ is being talked about all over the world all over the world. And so in light of that, I guess then the next question we need to ask ourselves is if the Apostle Paul came and visited us this morning, would he be able to say that our faith is being reported all over the world? Would he even be able to say that it's being talked about all over town? And praise God, I think at least in some ways, at least in small ways, the answer is yes. In our outreach through technology, we're reaching hundreds of people every week, and in our commitment to the local nursing homes and and to the other missions that we support, not just with our money, but that we support with our time and with our talent. But then we want to go one level deeper, right? What about as individuals? What about in our families? Your family members know that you're a person of faith. They know you're a Christian. Can they tell by your actions and your speech or? your generosity and your Christian service? What's, What's the evidence that they're seeing of your faith? I had a Sunday school teacher back in our church back home that would always ask that old question, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And just the circumstantial evidence of being in a church building once or twice a week wouldn't be admissible in court. So what's the evidence? But here the apostle Paul says the faith of these folks in Rome was being reported all over the world. And now Paul says he desires to come to Rome and be more than just a blessing to them. He wants to build them up and explain to them in more detail what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And if you can't tell from the letter, Paul really wanted to go there and preach. I mean, this guy loved to preach anywhere. And that's evident in his comments in verses 16 and 17 that we read. He said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. And this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. So you see, now we're, remember, we're still in chapter 1, so with Paul's letter barely started, he makes this really pretty bold claim here, especially considering his background. Right? One that we know a little bit more about because he talked about it in a different letter. In the letter to the Philippians, he says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I partially persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Because of what Christ has done. Because you see, when you consider that background, Paul could have been ashamed of preaching the gospel for a whole number of reasons. He could have been ashamed because he was a Jew. A devout Jew. And many, if not most of them, did not accept the Christian message. He could have been ashamed because he was well-educated and to some, the message of the gospel is foolishness. He could have been ashamed because his peer group, the Pharisees, couldn't stand the message of Christ. But Paul tells us in Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes. And he could say that because Paul understood the power of God. He was a product of that power, as we saw. He was a firsthand witness to it. He had met Jesus Christ face-to-face, and his life was never the same he experienced that power of God, that, that great and awesome power that raised Christ from the dead. A power that God still uses to compel people to face the reality of their own sin and their guilt and the inevitable judgment to come. And a power that draws those very same people to the one who gave his life so that our sin and our shame and our guilt could be taken away and replaced by God's mercy and grace. Because you see, Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because he knew it was the dynamite that that blasts away men's self-complacency and self-delusion and self-reliance and places our focus squarely on Jesus Christ. That's why he said in verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. And when he says that, he's reaching all the way back to a promise from the Old Testament, just like we've seen all through this year. And he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 to explain that this righteousness is received by faith only in Jesus Christ, which in turn is revealed through a believer's life of faith. You see, it's only received in Jesus Christ that turns around that and it reveals itself in us. It's the faith that's more than a just repeating of a particular prayer or filling a pew or filling out a commitment card, because, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit doesn't need you to walk down the aisle or to raise your hands or to come to the altar to come to Jesus. Because there's only one place to surrender a life to Jesus Christ, and that's inside your heart. And there's only one altar, and that's the altar of Calvary. See, that's the hope. That's the promise. That's the gift of God in Jesus Christ and looking at him, and and not to the church and not to Old Testament ordinances or trying to be good or keep the law, but in our simple trust in him. And so today... If the Lord is calling out to you, look to him while you can. Because the Bible tells us to seek the Lord while he can be found and call on him while he's near. But don't wait. Salvation is God's free gift, but it's on his terms and not ours. So if Christ is drawing you to himself today, I ask you in his name to repent and believe the gospel. Right now. Right where you are. Just like millions of people have done through the influence of Paul's letter of God's love to the Romans, revealing the very heart of the gospel. You know, we started out this message talking about letter writing. A English literature professor named J. Willis Westlake wrote that there's no other kind of writing that possesses for us such a living human interest as letters. He says, for there is no other that comes so near to the business and the bosom of the writer. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything closer to the heart of God than the message of the gospel. Written for you and for me in the precious blood of Jesus. And when I was kind of thinking about this week, it reminded me of that that Gaither hymn that I want to close with. It goes, for you and for me, Jesus died. And love's greatest story was told. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you, written in red. Down through the ages, God wrote his love with the same hands that suffered and bled, giving all that he had, a message so easily read. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you, written in red. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that uh, that you were willing to send your son. We thank you, Father, that his message of love is is written for us in that precious blood. And we thank you, Father, for this opportunity to open up the book of Romans, that we can receive from you the message that you would send us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would be with us now, Lord, also as we receive into the fellowship new members, and that your name alone, Father, would be glorified in everything that we do through Christ. Amen.